My name is Kylie Joe, or KJ as some of the kids know me, and I'm the director of FBC Kids. Um, and I get the privilege of reading the scripture um, for you today, primarily so the kids still get to hear my voice, um, because I just think it's fair they get to see uh, teacher Kylie Joe whenever. Um, so today we are going to be looking at the scripture from Luke 9, verses 1 through 6, if you can um, follow along with me on the screens or in your word. And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. He said to them, take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Thank you, KJ. Good morning, everyone. So my wife and I uh, just recently bought a little camping trailer. We have been talking about how much we want our kids to grow up experiencing the outdoors and uh, seeing all the beauty that God has crafted in this world, especially when you live in a state as beautiful as Oregon. I mean, everything from incredible waterfalls to amazing coastland to absolute deserts, huge mountains. We should take advantage of that, get out as much as we can. And also, any excuse to get out of cell range and away from screens, am I right? I don't know what it is about screens. You have the most just darling children in the world, and these little devices just turn them into gremlins. It's just, oh. I grew up camping all the time. I tent camping, and then from when I was 10 years old, we had a little tent trailer, and that made it so easy to just pop it on the vehicle and then get out for a weekend when available. In fact, I grew up camping this weekend pretty much every year of my life that I can remember. And uh, with both of my wife and I's work schedules being pretty random, her working in healthcare and we're working in, me working in ministry, um, we get these unexpected windows of opportunity to get away for a day or two. And we figured, you know, camping would be a lot easier, those getaways would be a lot easier if we had, you know, a hard-sided trailer that had all the supplies in it, was already ready to go. All we had to do was just hook it up to the truck, swing by the grocery store on the way out, and then we're off on our adventure. Another reason we bought it is because it would double as a guest bedroom. We have a pretty small starter home, and uh, none of our family lives in town. So whenever family comes to visit, they tend to stay for a while, and it can get real crowded in our house real quick. And so we've got RV parking on the side, so we're able to park it out there, and it'll make the house you know, last longer before we feel like we need to move on to something bigger. Win-win, multifunctional solution, you know, lots of great ideas. You're all like... Good for you, Seth. Get to the point. <laughs> well, this is what it currently looks like. Remember how April had record-breaking rainfall in parts of Oregon? So I went out to the trailer a couple weeks ago to put some stuff away, and I noticed that there was um, some spots of water and stains on the comforter of the bed in the front section. I looked up, and there was a drip of water coming from the light, and I go, okay... How bad's it going to be? So I take off the light fixture, and a little bit of water comes out. It's not too bad. I stick my fingers up in there and kind of feel around. It feels wet. Okay, I probably better pull the panels down. So I start to, you know, 
pop all the panels off just on the roof. Okay, maybe if it's just a little bit damp, I can pop the panels off, let it dry out, and then put them back up. Well, as I start pulling the panel down, water just starts <laughs> cascading into the trailer. And, and now I'm, I'm pulling out the fiberglass insulation that's like four times as heavy as it starts and was just absolutely sopping and it's sticking to my hands and I'm tossing it out the door of the trailer. And I get that all cleared out and I look up and like a quarter of the roof is full of black mold. I'm sitting here going, oh, what did I just get myself into? So here I was excited, you know, at this idea of this smart, multi-purpose solution, you know, this investment in prolonging our home's usability and flexibility, as well as being able to, you know, have our daughters experience the joy of camping and all the beauty and wonder that is Oregon. I'm relying on this trailer to fulfill all of those expectations, and now it's sitting in my driveway looking like that. I did some further demolition yesterday than what that picture showed, and it's possible now I'm going to have to replace actually the whole front entire section of the roof, and we have like four camping trips planned this year. Not sure if we're going to go on any of them with the trailer. What you going to do? <laughs> I was relying on this trailer to be a source of joy and utility, not a headache and a money pit. Disappointment is usually the result of unmet expectations. How often has this been the case in your life as well? And dare I ask, how often has this been your case as a Christian as well? Be honest. You know, Jesus says that the best thing for us is to follow him, right? But then things don't go like we want. The expectations aren't met. He tells us to pray for things we want to see happen, so we pray for that job, and then we don't get hired. We pray for our grandpa to beat cancer, and he loses the battle. I mean, you would think the all-powerful creator of the universe being on your side, being in control of your life, would mean that stuff should go well for you, right? If he loves me, if he's a good father, if all these things that I see in Scripture about how good he is are true— why am I not seeing that in my life? And don't you think that would also mean that since he's so powerful, since he created the universe, he could probably do all the stuff for me? I wouldn't even have to really do that much work. Stuff would just go my way. I would just think I'd just walk along and just the steps are just laying before me, just this golden road of prosperity and abundance and everything always working out. Well, if you've been a Christian for longer than 10 minutes, you know that's not the case. In our passage in Luke this morning, we're going to be in Luke 9, 1 through 17. We learn from Jesus two important lessons about the reality of relying on God. So have you ever had someone say the phrase to you, or maybe you've said it to your own child, this is for your own good? Why do we say that? Because the person about to receive the thing is doing the math and going, this does not seem like it's for my own good. Uh, probably six months ago or so, maybe longer, um, I was taking Ellie, my oldest daughter, to a, random, you know, a regular appointment checkup at the pediatrics office. And she's just being her usual cheerful, you know, chatty self, whatever. And we're driving up and we, we pull into the driveway and I drive around the building to go to the back and all of a sudden it gets really quiet. And all of a sudden I hear, Daddy, I'm nervous. I don't want to take a shot. 
<laughs> and I was like, I don't know if you're going to get a shot, sweetie, but, but those words came out of my mouth. This is for your own good. <laughs> All she knows is she would rather not be there, rather not getting poked. And she's going to tell me, because she doesn't understand the benefits of the vaccine and the danger of what she could get if she doesn't get that little poke. I think Jesus is saying that to his disciples and to us as well in this passage. Luke 9, 1. So Jesus calls the 12 disciples together and he gives them a power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he tells them to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And then he gives them this really weird list starting in verse 3. Take nothing for your journey, no staff, no bag, no bread, nor money. Don't have two tunics, and whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there, depart. Why do you think Jesus gives them this really weird, really impractical, really illogical list? It's just, it just seems so weird. I mean, no staff. That's what you lean on if you don't have a place to sit so you can take a rest. It's so you can walk longer distances without getting tired. No bag. So, you know, no backpack to carry anything. You think airlines are strict on weight. Jesus says no bag whatsoever. It could also potentially refer to maybe a beggar's bag, like a source of being able to receive income on the, on the side of the road as you're going to keep funding your ministry. In any case, no bag. No bread. You would think at least pack enough meal until you get to the next city. That's just, that's just common sense, right? No money. Okay, so no ability. If I, if I can't take my own food, at least give me money so I can go buy food or buy a staff or buy clothing or whatever. Or don't take two tunics. So you even have to rely on other people to not be naked while you're washing your one set of clothes. And in whatever house you come upon, stay there. He's saying no, no house hunting. No looking for the nicest crib. No going into someone's house because they're generous. And then you look across the street and go, well, you know, that guy's, that guy's got a pool. We should go see if he wants to let us stay there. These things don't seem like practical ideas. And it doesn't honestly seem like trusting God. When I look at that list, I'm like, well, that's just lazy. That's just poor planning. That's just being a burden on everyone that you come to. Like, get your stuff together. Don't be, you know, problematic for people. Don't be an issue for people. But if you look back to verse 1, what does Jesus give them before they go? He gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. That's the power that Jesus has. That's the power of the Holy Spirit. Remember, at this point, Pentecost has not happened. The Spirit has not been poured out on all believers. It's just Jesus. And he occasionally imparts that onto people for certain amounts of time. They get glimpses of what that's like. If you were given that kind of power, how, how tempted would you be to abuse that power. You don't think people would pay for your services if you could cure diseases, if you could cast out demons? In fact, we have examples of this very thing trying to happen uh, in the book of Acts. If you turn with me to Acts chapter 8, there's this great story 
starting in verse 9 of Acts 8. So Philip, one of the disciples, is at this point off in Samaria, and he is proclaiming the gospel to the Samaritans there. And there's a guy there named Simon. He's a magician. So we'll start reading in verse 9. There was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. Now, this is likely real magic. This is likely the power of some demonic force or something that is actually doing miracles. I don't think it's just sleight of hand. Scripture says pretty clearly, I mean, he's doing things that are actually either physically or mentally or psychologically impossible. And he's been doing it for a long time. He's good at it. He makes a living wowing people with spiritual forces. Verse 12, But when the Samaritans believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. So that's interesting. Philip was doing signs and wonders that were so amazing that Simon, the magician who had been playing with dark magic for a long time, it amazed even him. He was sitting there going, how is he doing this? What is this kind of power? I've never seen that before. Verse 14, now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them and received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said will come upon me. Two things really interesting about this story. First, is Simon a Christian? At this point, yeah. It says, even Simon himself believed and was baptized. He's, he's as Christian as you can be at that point before Peter and John came to lay on the Holy Spirit on them. And what's the second thing that's really interesting is that The disciples don't tell Simon that's not how it works. They don't tell Simon you can't buy that power or it can't be given to you. They say it's the intent of your heart is the reason why you can't receive this power. He doesn't say it, but they obviously perceive that Simon's intent was to have a bigger magic show. His intent was to use this newfound power for his own gain, not to actually submit to Christ and submit to his mission, which is what the giving of that power is for. Simon's problem is that he's asking the wrong question. How do I get God to add something to my life? 
I've got a good thing going. I found something that might be a bit of an addition. But that's not how it works. When you submit to God, your life is now hidden in Christ. You give up your old ways. You move to something completely new. It's not Jesus sprinkles over your own bootstrap banana split and you're just like, I've got my good thing going. Just let me put a little bit more. It's wiping the slate completely clean and surrendering your life to Christ and starting with something new. The problem with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, if you can call it a problem, is that it's the power of God. That's the power that created the universe. It's the most powerful thing there is in the entire universe. Freedom in Christ is a dangerous thing, if I can say it that way. It sounds a little bit odd. I mean, Paul exhorts Christians all throughout Scripture about the dangers of freedom in Christ and what that freedom is meant to be used for. Galatians is one of the more well-known passages. Galatians 5, starting in verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. So the now and not yet that we live in is this really weird period where if you believe in Christ, you have the Holy Spirit, he indwells you, and you have the power of God available to you to obey him and to see these wondrous things happen and to serve him. But you also still have that fleshy part that goes, ooh, power, ooh, authority, ooh, control. Can I, can I get in on some of this action? And that's our daily wrestling. Paul says in Romans 7, I do the things I don't want to do. I don't do the things I want to do. Wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? It's a rhetorical question. Of course, Jesus. But we're in this wrestling, struggling battle between good and evil within our own bodies until the day we die or the day Christ returns. And so there is inherent danger in being filled with this kind of power and yet also still being influenced by darkness. Jesus commands that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God and the other one that is like it to love your neighbor as yourself. And what better way is there to love your neighbor than to be led by the Spirit to share the hope of the life-giving gospel of Jesus Christ, not to use it for your own gain, not to improve your life, but to, in humility, love and serve others. And it's hard to be led by the Spirit when you're distracted by the desires of the flesh. Jesus teaches in Matthew 6.33, why do you worry about what you're going to eat or what you're going to wear? Look at the flowers. God clothes them more splendidly than Solomon in all his glory and all his riches. So he says to seek first the kingdom of God and all these things are going to be added to you. 
Because if we seek the kingdom of self, we're naturally going to take the gifts of God and we're going to turn them inward to try to benefit ourselves. Jesus commands us to rely on him in everything, that the gifts of God may be turned outward toward their intended targets, those in need of the saving love and power of Jesus Christ. Don't get me wrong, you still need that too. Every day we need the saving love and power of Jesus Christ. But we are given those gifts in order to be a blessing. We are given that power in order to use it to see others prosper. You see, that's all that Jesus does. He, when he remember when, when he's tempted in the wilderness and Satan comes to him and says, hey, you know, make yourself bread out of stones or jump off the top of the tower and the angels will catch you and you're not going to fall. Jesus never argues with him and says that won't happen. Jesus could turn rocks into bread. He created the universe out of nothing. Jesus could fall from the top of the temple and not break his legs. That's not the argument he was making with Satan. He's like, that's not what this power is for. That's not why I'm here. And in turn, that's not why little Christs, Christians, are here. And that's really hard to do. Relying on God is really hard to do. But it's for your own good. The second thing we learn is that relying on God does not mean taking a back seat. Let's read up through, we'll go to verse 10. Luke 9, verse 10. On their return from the mission that Jesus had just sent the apostles out on, they told him all that they had done, and he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. So, you know, Jesus, like I said, hasn't given the Great Commission yet. He hasn't imparted the Holy Spirit to all believers yet. And so, verse 9, 1 through 6, this little mission they went out was a training mission. It was a test, sort of, of the things that are yet to come. I mean, place yourself in the apostles' shoes for a moment. Close your eyes if you have to. Seriously, imagine this. You've been following this crazy teacher for a while, and he keeps talking about all these really weird backwards ideas like blessed are the poor, blessed are those who are weeping, blessed are those who are hungry, and woe to those who are rich and well-fed and happy. That you should love your enemies. Love those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. That makes no sense. And then you've watched him raise people from the dead. You've watched him heal thousands of diseases, all the while himself never becoming ritually impure somehow. And then he rebukes a storm. That's what we just went over, I think, last week, just before this passage. He rebukes a storm, and it's instant. Instantly, you know, 20-foot, 30-foot breakers to sea of glass, no wind. And then right after that, he casts out apparently a thousand demons from a man into an entire herd of pigs, and they go running off the end of a cliff and die. So Jesus has more authority than thousands of demons. You've watched him do all of this, and now you, a lowly fisherman or a tax collector has been given the same power and authority that you've just been watching Jesus use over the last year. What are you feeling? What does that feel like? To me, it seems like handing the keys to a monster truck to a six-year-old boy. 
So exciting, so much power. I doubt I'm going to be able to control this. It's probably going to be an incredible whirlwind experience if it doesn't mow you over. I'd have bewildered exhaustion after just experiencing what that actually feels like to have the power of Christ within you, empowering you to do things that you never thought were possible. I'd need to stop for a bit and process. And Jesus does that. In verse 10, he, he takes them on a little retreat. That sounds wonderful. After you've just been, I mean, I'd need some room to get out, get away, go, what in the world just happened? What does this mean for me? Like, how am I going to live the rest of my life now? What is Jesus calling me to actually do? Where does this end? Because I'm sure I've seen him do plenty of other things that we didn't do. But then in verse 11, the crowds find them. Dun, dun, dun. Just as the retreat was getting going. When the crowds learned that they were in Bethsaida, they followed him. And he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away, go into the surrounding villages and countryside and find lodging and get provisions, for we are all here in a desolate place. Jesus, look around, there's no food. All these people are going to need food and lodging. Let's figure something out for them. But Jesus said to them, You give them something to eat. They said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless we are to go and buy food for these people. For there were about 5,000 men. And he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so. And he had them sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples and set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up, 12 basketfuls of broken pieces. Can you imagine being one of the disciples? You just did all of this amazing work. You experienced this power. Now you're drained. You're exhausted. And just as you get going on your retreat, a whole bunch of people show up and Jesus goes, cool, back to work, and gets going again. And you're like, Jesus, we, ju we just did this for like two weeks and you didn't let us take anything with us. Like, I just want to sit, relax, enjoy, catch up on Netflix, and here you go, just healing people because they're in need again. And now when they go, okay, Jesus is here. There's a whole bunch of people. We're going to think practically. We're going to think logically. What do we got to do? We're not going to have enough food. Send them out. And then Jesus goes, you give them something to eat, you 12 fishermen, tax collectors. You figure it out. He's telling them when he says that, not, this is your job per se. You have to be creative and come up with a solution on your own. He's telling them, hey guys, there are no spectators in the kingdom of heaven. My plan isn't to do this for you. Just because Jesus is here, now the disciples can sit on the sidelines. Oh, there's a problem. Jesus, could you, could you take care of that? Could you figure that out? No, guys, you're on the clock. Jesus wants them to be creative, active partners. Use the power of the Holy Spirit, the same power that created the universe, and bless people with it. He's trying to teach them the lesson that he tried to have them learn when he sent them out beforehand, was that you are now 
little Christ. You are going to do the same work that I am doing and more than I can do because I'm just one person. Clearly, they hadn't learned it yet because as soon as they got back under Jesus' wing, they just went, Jesus, can you fix it again? How many of you have heard this phrase posted on social media or bumper stickers? It's been around a long time. Let go and let God. It sounds wonderful, doesn't it? It, just, it sounds so spiritual. It sounds so convenient. It's, it's, just, it's such an easy answer. Oh, I let go of my problems. God takes my problems. He fixes my problems and he gives them back to me. Brand new. And I do nothing. Is that a verse in the Bible? Nope. That concept isn't even biblical. It's anti-biblical. It's a posture of being passive, of just letting stuff roll over you. Just live my little life, hope God works out all the details, solves my problems, smooths over the bumpy road ahead for me so that I don't have to get all anxious and get all worried and get all stressed about what's going to happen. But the reality is, is there is no option in the Christian life to be passive. 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 20. Oh, I didn't make a bookmark for it. I'll find it. Second Corinthians 5, 18 through 20. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. If you are a follower of Christ, you are on a mission, given by God, made possible by the filling of the Holy Spirit in your life. Back to Galatians 5 again, it says that we're supposed to keep in step with the Spirit. And you do that by, by following his lead, by responding to the situations and prompts that he places before you, and then trusting that through his power, you can obey, you can overcome. We learn from the book of Proverbs that we love to quote, probably have this one stitched on pillows or on, I'm sure you've seen at least one of these in Hobby Lobby. Proverbs 16, 9, the heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. And Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. Here's the thing. The Lord cannot direct your steps if you're not taking any. Making a straight path does no good if the body's not already in motion. Now the place you're not going is just straighter. It's okay to pray for the Lord's will and guidance in a situation. Absolutely seek the Lord <clears throat> in all things. But how often does that prayer turn into some sort of like Hail Mary? Some, you know, I want to see riding in the sky. I want to see smoke trails. I want to see an angel appear to me and tell me in plain English and then tell me again because I won't believe him if he shows up. That's pretty much just asking for God to make the decision for you. You want the, the idea, the decision to be so clear 
that it's essentially already made, and the extent of your obedience is, mm-hmm, and one step, and that's it. But the vast majority of the Christian experience of following the Spirit is just not like that. I'm sure most of you have already experienced that. But it's so tempting to continue to want that because it's easier and there's less chance of us making mistakes. I don't know if all of you are people pleasers. I am. And that's the biggest thing that keeps me from following God is I'm afraid I'm not going to be able to please him. That some decision I make is going to mess up God's plans. First of all, that's weirdly in this reverse sort of way, prideful, because now I think that somehow I'm powerful enough to mess up the creator of the universe. But it also reveals that I don't trust God to be powerful enough to use whatever decision I make for his glory. We see the evidence all over history. It's amazing how often God uses incredibly, in fact, he exclusively uses broken people, except for Jesus. Because that's all there is. And all of human history is the Lord shaping and reshaping and redeeming all of these mistakes, all of these weird decisions, all of these weird choices, and bringing goodness and glory for himself and goodness for his people in the midst of all of their mistakes, in the midst of all of their brokenness. The more appropriate course of action for us is to, yes, pray for wisdom and guidance, but then consider and make a decision and ask that the Lord bless that decision and use it for his glory and and our good. Don't get me wrong. He absolutely cares about the little things, but your decisions are not going to mess up God's plans. The only wrong decision you can make is sitting back and doing nothing. Do you think if the disciples had decided to grab the five loaves and the two fish and start dividing it up, do you think the miracle still would have happened? I'd like to think it would have. I don't think that was a Jesus-specific miracle. Now, it certainly plays a role in the whole redemptive narrative of teaching people who Jesus is, revealing who he is. But I think he was teaching his disciples that God is not limited by logistics. God is not limited by any of the limits that you would look at and consider as roadblocks. I mean, if you think about it, five loaves and two fish isn't even enough to feed the 12 disciples, probably, let alone upwards of 15,000 people if you're counting the women and the children. And unlike Simon in Samaria, the disciples didn't have any previous experience with the magic arts of any kind besides going out on the mission just before this. And most of them were fishermen. You'd think they'd probably be an expert in knowing how many fish it would take to feed that many people, right? Jesus is telling his disciples, don't be overwhelmed. Don't be daunted by the task at hand because of practicality issues or logistical issues or whatever you see before you that seems an impassable roadblock. Open your eyes and see the goodness of God. Open your eyes and see the heart of God and then ask Well, what's possible with God, not by your own means? What would the Lord want to do here? And then ask that he intervene. This encounter, I know it's probably one of the more well-known stories in all of Scripture, but it's so much more than just an amazing story of a bunch of hungry people that were miraculously fed. 
Jesus is showing his disciples, which includes all of you, I hope, to not be afraid of the seemingly impossible and scary task of preaching the gospel to the whole world. This isn't just about food. This is about giving life. This is about what are the disciples here for? What are we here for? Why are we still here when Jesus is in heaven? Another interesting note, and it's not in here, but I think, well, it's in Scripture. He doesn't explain it. Don't hear me. I'm not adding anything. How many basketfuls are left over? Twelve baskets. How many disciples are there? Twelve disciples. I'd like to think that's Jesus saying, you know what? You are going to serve. You're going to give of yourself more than you think possible. And at the end of it, your basket's going to be full. Fuller than when you started. I don't know how big the baskets were, but I guess as they filled more than five loaves and two fish. It's going to be worth it, he says. Don't worry about providing for yourself. Don't worry about the little things. Don't take a back seat and just hope Jesus does everything for you. Because oftentimes when you do that, you're really just trying to protect what you already have. Jesus, I don't, I don't know where this road leads. In theory, I know where this road leads with, with my stuff, with my ideas, with my plans, with my goals, with my American dream, whatever it is. I don't know where, Je- what if Jesus sends me to China? What if Jesus sends me to my death? What if Jesus makes it so that I never get married and I don't have those 15 kids I want? What if Jesus means I never have as much money as I was hoping to have? What if Jesus means I do have 15 kids and I didn't want any? Never know. But I think the baskets are a promise that there is unimaginable abundance, peace, rest, and joy for the ambassadors that are faithful to the end. I want to close with a few observations and thoughts. How often do we remove the opportunity for God to show up because we spend so much time covering our bases and just playing it safe? When you're not in trouble, you're not looking for help. If you have everything dialed, you're never looking for saving. When Jesus tells his disciples not to take any extra provisions for his, their journey, he's not telling them to be unwise. Hear me out. But he's trying to teach them and he's trying to teach us that what you think you need and what God knows you need are not the same thing. Scripture says the wisdom of God is foolishness to man. Now, let's be clear. The grace of God is not just this parachute so you can be lazy and make poor choices over and over and over again with no hope of consequences. But if he calls you to do something or you see a need and you feel the desire to meet that need and it seems like it's a thing that lines up with Scripture, it seems like a Jesus thing to do even though it sounds crazy and the math doesn't add up, he will prove himself to be faithful And you don't get to see that if you don't take the step and find out. Just be aware, he may prove himself faithful in a way you're not expecting. But it's always for your good and it's always for his glory. I also want you to know that you are never too young to be used by God. King Josiah in the book of 2 Kings 
led a great revival of the Israelites back to worshiping God and away from worshiping idols. And he destroyed thousands of idols and brought peace and prosperity to all of Israel. And he became king when he was eight years old. Mary, the mother of Jesus, she likely wasn't more than 14, 15 years old when the angel came to her, gave her that incredible proclamation, and then she gave birth to the Savior of the world. The Apostle Paul encourages young Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.12, Let no one look down on you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. You are never too young, too small, too insignificant to be used powerfully by God because it's not you. It's the Holy Spirit within you. And conversely, you are never too old for God to be done with you. I'm just going to say it bluntly. If you're not dead, you're not done. If you're still breathing, you still have a mission. The finish line is the grave. And until that day, you are an ambassador for Christ whose highest purpose is to call all people to be reconciled to God. It doesn't mean you don't enjoy golf. It doesn't mean you don't enjoy painting or pottery, hobbies, enjoying the fruits of having worked hard for years and years and years. But the mission of God is not done until you cross that finish line and hear, well done, good and faithful servant. So I just want to encourage you this morning, don't give up. The Lord has placed an incredible calling on your life. And if you don't know what that is yet, keep taking steps, keep being faithful. And if you've already been walking for years and years and years and you've seen him be faithful, you've, maybe you've been a pastor for 30 years, you were a missionary for 40 years, you're still not done. If you're still breathing, you're still not done. He still has more for you. I believe, critical, important, beautiful, wonderful, amazing gospel things every single second of the day left if you're willing to walk in those things until the day you pass. So let's keep going. Let's keep moving. Let's keep pursuing, walking with the Spirit, in step with Him, longing to see the kingdom of God grow in this city, in this country, in the world, and keep praying, Lord, come soon. Will you pray with me? Thank you, Jesus, that you give us your word, your truth. That you say so many things that don't make sense, that cause us to pause and wonder, what are you really getting on about? Thank you that you're reliable and that that relying is a challenge because it forces us to always trust in you, to never grow too comfortable in our own skin. Because who knows when you're going to flip the script and it's going to be for your glory and for our good. Pray that you would give us boldness to keep following the Spirit's leading, that you would quiet the voice of the enemy that causes us to hesitate, that causes us to second guess, it causes us to react in fear instead of reacting in hope. Give us clear eyes to see your love for the people around us, to be ambitious, to be excited, to share the gospel, even if we're not very good at it. That we would see opportunities for you to work through us in powerful ways that we didn't know were possible. 
and to have a chance to continue to know you more, love you more, grow closer to you. We can't wait for you to come back, Lord, but empower us for your mission in the meantime. It's in your precious and holy name we pray. Amen.